This episode of The First Feature is sponsored by Musicbed. Just like scouting, filming, and editing, having great music should be an asset to your film, not a roadblock. Musicbed is dedicated to making that a reality. That's why they've completely rebuilt their platform of over 650 world-class artists and composers with brand new features, workflows, and checkout process. Want to exclude holiday songs from your search in July? Go for it. Need a folk song that has a guitar but no banjos at 120 beats per minute? No problem. With advanced search features like include, exclude, beats per minute, key, song build, and more, finding the perfect song has never been easier or faster. Get 20% off your next on-site license with coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Learn more at musicbed.com new. Again, that's coupon code FIRSTFEATURE20. Welcome to the first feature, a No Film School podcast. My name is Ryan Koo, and my first feature is titled Amateur. It's on Netflix. Watch it if you haven't already. We're, we're talking about production now. It's going to be kind of weird if you haven't seen the movie. We're probably, probably dropping some spoilers in here. Every episode of the first feature covers a different phase of production, from screenwriting to prep to production, where we are now to release. The other voice you're hearing is that of No Film School producer John Fusco. This is my voice. And we are in episode seven, a day in the life, a day of production. Both of those, I kind of like that. A day in the life, colon, a day in production, or maybe a day in the a, a day, day in the life of production. <laughs> a day in the life of production. Sure. Yeah. Good. Q Beatles song. Yeah. Up. Oh, turns out we didn't have the rights. There's so much to talk about with production. I mean, the whole podcast could be that. You could definitely share plenty of war stories to fill out a 10-hour podcast on production alone. What we figured we would do is center this conversation around one day in production that is indicative of what you might encounter, things to expect, but how a day is structured, how to direct actors, so on and so forth. So let's get into it. So Ryan, just for a bit of context, how many days was your shoot? Our shoot was 25 days, so that's five-day weeks. If my math is correct, five weeks. And was that enough time? Oh, it's never enough time. But I think the thing to keep in mind there is not how many days you have, but how many hours you have. Yeah, I think I was leading you a bit with that question. I don't think you're ever going to get as much time as you want to shoot your movie. It's really just how can you be as efficient with the time that you have, the hours that you have, as possible to make sure that your movie succeeds in the way that you'd like it to. A lot of first-time features have fewer than 25 days. But with us, the battle was always to make sure that everyone understood that because we have a 14-year-old, or Michael was 15 when we shot the movie, in every single scene of the film, that we don't have your usual 12 hours of an actor per day 14-hour crew days configuration, we could only have Michael for eight and a half hours and he's in every single scene and you don't want the other actors acting against a stand-in and their close-up. I mean, that's not great for performance. There were times when we had to do that. There were times when I had to play Michael off camera. I mean, we had to do everything in this movie. But for the most part, we're really just trying to maximize the time that we had with Michael on set. And what that means is our shoot parceled out over 25 days was fewer hours total than some shoots that were 18-day shoots. So the number of days is usually 
pretty indicative of how much time you have to make the movie. But on this case, in this case, because we had a minor in every single scene, uh, it was less about the number of days and just about total time. So then how many hours was a typical day on set uh, of your film? Yeah, I mean, we still, as a crew... It, they were still really long days because, as I, I said previously, we you know there were still things like location scouting that we were doing, and uh, you know the, the film the film was a scramble. And what we would try to do was we would get there early, try to do as much prep as we could, try to get through multiple locations, whatever approvals needed to be done for for the sets, for costumes, uh, get the lights have everything ready to go as much as possible so when, when Michael got there and the clock started we knew that you know basically at midnight he was going to turn into a pumpkin and yeah. and um, we have to, have to do the whole thing over again so our days were still at least you know our, sta- our days were still close to the 12 14 hour day thing because Michael having eight and a half hours on set was I think actually he his day could be nine and a half hours, but only eight and a half could be on set. Mm-hmm. So you know there's like a lunch and time offset that kind of thing in there. So it it was still they were still long days, but that was because of sort of the moving parts of of how many scenes there are in the movie and how many locations and how many extras and those things are are high for an indie. You've got to get your extras through wardrobe. You got to get them in place. You've got to light this large gym you know they're big spaces you gotta light it for high speed whatever it may be um you know there was still there was so much to do that our days were not short but but the actual time that we could be rolling camera was so it seems that every day was different but was every day different on set or after a certain amount of time did things start to feel like more of a smooth routine did you get into a groove every day is different i think the crew gets into a groove and that's part of what we can talk about in terms of how to schedule your movie because especially on a first time feature where you you haven't made one before possibly other crew members have not made a feature before either day one is going to be rough you're all you know you're getting to know people's names you're getting to know the equipment people are not in a rhythm yet so in terms of doing an overall schedule with the assistant director you typically want you t- don't typically want to put your hardest scenes, either from a performance standpoint or just from a logistics, you know, action, number of characters, number of camera movements or setups. You don't want to put those at the very beginning because you're still going to be working out kinks. You want to you want to open the movie on something that's going to go well and that you that is achievable. And if if day one or day two of the film, if everything's going wrong, that's not a great foot to get off on. So you, you, you want to sort of find something that's one of the more simple scenes, learn with the crew where strengths and weaknesses are. Maybe you've got to replace some people on a crew. It's unfortunate, but it usually happens early in, in the film. And then you, the crew does start getting into a rhythm. Everyone gets to know each other. You figure out you know, how you're all best working together. And then once you get into the, the meat of the schedule, in the middle of the shoot, then hopefully you've, you've got the sweet spot of everybody knows what they're doing and they're up to speed but you're not yet totally exhausted. <laughs> so then by the end, um, everyone's going to be tired. I mean, whether we had eight and a half hours of our lead or whether someone else has 12 hours and of, of, of their principal cast, the days are always long. It's always a scramble. It's always a trudge. And that's something that's different with features than with a short. With a commercial, you know, it's, 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 it's a marathon, not a sprint. So in terms of the overall schedule, yeah, I mean, ideally you put some of your harder stuff in the middle of, of the movie and um, 
maybe for for actors and performances some of some of the climactic things can be at the end um but but for the crew you definitely do get into rhythm but it's not going to be on day one so then what factors need to be considered beforehand before you get on set uh for the day to ensure that a day on set moves smoothly well the first thing is the assistant director doing an overall schedule obviously the producers the line producer unit production manager, there's there's all sorts of departments that are making sure that everything is is there, that it's lined up, that budgetarily it's going to work. But you need a schedule. You need to know where you're going to be and who's going to be there. And the assistant director, that's sort of their primary responsibility during prep. Once you get to set, the assistant director is also the one who's running the set and running your, as a director, running your communication through the assistant director to parcel out various objectives to various departments. But the schedule in advance is, it's a really important thing for the movie because obviously you can prioritize all manner of different things and you need to choose. If you have time to spend on this, then you don't have time somewhere else. And one of the basic ways to think about how you do a schedule is just how many setups is this scene, right? If you take a simple scene, two people talking in a location, how many camera angles do you have? Uh, One rule of thumb is a setup is 20 minutes in terms of blocking it, moving the camera, lighting for that, doing however many takes you can, and moving on. So therefore, you can start to divide up your days and say, well, this is, and this day we're going to do however many pages of dialogue. Each scene is going to take this long. There are going to be this many camera angles. You can sort of start doing the math. And then hopefully when you get there on the day, you have a sense of, of if you're, ahead or behind schedule. Yeah, and I think that the schedule, I mean, this may be kind of obvious, but it's such a huge uh, factor of running an organized set um, that it actually helps you with more than just like running an efficient set or like keeping things moving uh, as timely as possible. It also sort of like forces you to group scenes that like share a location together together. so that you don't waste any time with company moves, which I guess you got you never had a company move, right? We, we ended up doing a couple, but that was sort of as, as the movie goes on, you, if you fall behind, if you miss a scene, you have to move it to the end of the schedule. If, if a location fell through, then you've got to change that around. So we ended up doing some, but those company moves were timed so that it was at lunch anyway. Yeah, exactly. But that's the kind of like importance and level of detail that you need to get when you're actually scheduling a day in the life of this production. You really have to have every single moment accounted for so you can, you know, make it make your time on set as efficient as possible because you don't have a lot of time. Yeah, let's get into it. Let's get into a day of production. Sure. So I guess just walk me through. You brought something along with you uh, that we can't show guests because this is an audio podcast, but can you, like, tell us a little bit about what a call sheet looks like on a Ryan Koo production? A call sheet on a Ryan Koo production looks like a call sheet on anybody's production. I mean, there's there's templates out there. You can go find one. It, it hits all the basics. And it's also the moment where you know your movie is real. Yeah, definitely. It says day one of 25, and you see it, and there's a time, and there's a call time for production, for different crew members, for cast members, for the director. There's the weather. There's the prop needs. Uh, which locations, and then most importantly, the meat of the call sheet is what scenes are you shooting, and what order are they, what scene number are they, 
and who's in them. And that's when it becomes very apparent to you that this scene is not something that you are going to be able to make in the perfect world even though your movie's going to be presented in the ideal world in a dark theater with perfect sound and everything, this is something that you have a very limited amount of time to get in the can because you have to move on to the next thing and so on and so forth. That's, you know, with the call sheet is when it gets real. Okay, so let's talk about this example that you've brought with you today. Uh, what was this day on set like on your call sheet? Yeah, so this is uh, shoot day 21 of 25. Close to the end. Close to the end. We're getting there. So the, the, the up top says 12 p.m. That's the call time. What we were doing by this point in the shoot is we were shooting splits. So first half of the day are daytime scenes or you're doing day for night on an interior or something like that. And then the second half are nighttime scenes. One of the challenges with doing splits, I think we talked about it before, is that you sort of have two hard outs because your, your time is going to be shifting. You can't switch something from the first half to the second half of the schedule and vice versa because you're doing both day and night in in one day but with michael rainey jr being 15 and having a hard out at 12 30 we could never really do night shoots on the movie because it doesn't get dark till 8 30 so we, pretty much all of our night shoots were going to have to be half days and therefore splits so here it says 12 p.m is the general call time but production was there at 10 a.m breakfast is at 10 a.m shooting call is two meaning we're going to start shooting at two so when we were talking in the last episode about how our days were long Yet, even though we only had eight and a half hours of Michael on set, you can see that the production call time is 10 a.m., but we're not start, starting to shoot until 2. And, you know, we know we're going to wrap out Michael at 1230. So that's part of how our days are, are getting there. Um, this being day 21, you can also see that we are jumping around in the schedule a lot. You mean jumping around like scene-wise? Of course, yeah. And And this movie in particular being a film where... Uh, the kid starts in one place and he goes away and he comes back and the world has changed. You know, very uh, structured, three-act, clear configuration means that you're, of course, going to shoot the first and the third act at the same time in the same places. That also means that you're doing your beginning of your movie and the end of the movie at the same time. So it means that you're actually jumping around quite a bit more than a, a, a film where maybe the location was contained to one act. In this case, day 21, our lineup was... Scene 17, 19, A64, 65, 76, and 16 for a total of five and five-eighths pages. On an indie, you can pretty simply do the math about how many pages a day are you going to need to shoot. If you have 100 pages of script and you have 20 days of shooting, then you're going to be averaging five pages a day, right? Mm. Some films have to do an insane number. Five and five-eighths getting pretty up there. Some films shoot for 90 days and do less than a page a day. In this case, basketball was something that we knew we couldn't shoot five pages of basketball a day. So all of the dramatic scenes, the days that we were shooting basketball, the page count would be fairly low because there's so many moving parts and extras and, and all of the number of setups and, and uh, slow motion and lighting and everything, you can't move through that particularly quickly. And then therefore, our dramatic days would have to have a higher page count. So then I assume that you show up on set at 10 a.m. with the rest of the crew. Uh, what is your job as soon as you get onto set? 
What are you doing? Yeah, my call time was probably actually a little bit later, but I was always there early. Um, the First of all, the first challenge is that I was probably rewriting the script until five in the morning the previous night. And by day 21, doing a 12 or 14 hour day and then doing a five or six hour day of writing. I mean, we're talking 90 to 100 hour weeks. Um, at this point, the number of coffees is getting... I'm not somebody that drinks a lot of coffee, but in production, yeah, drink, a lot, drink a lot of coffee. Yep. So the first thing is getting there, getting breakfast, walking the set, trying to trying to just figure out what problems you might encounter on the day, and um, just prepping yourself, going through the script, looking over all your materials, just trying to make sure that there's nothing that there's no stone that you've left unturned. That by the time the rest of the crew shows up and the actors and everything that you already know where all the shots are, where the scene's going to be, there aren't any changes, whatever whatever is, is unexpected you will have already encountered. If the weather's different, if the set doesn't look like you expected it to, a lot of it is, is sort of inspecting, you know, this might be the first time you see this room that you're going to be filming in, and if you get there early, then you maybe have enough time to give a direction or make a change. Um, in general, on a production, the fewer the surprises, the better the more that you've given directions and that those have been carried out and you're showing up to something that's not unexpected, uh, that's a great feeling. And so this is, uh, let's see, day 21. The location is what we call it the Liberty House. So in the film, Tehran goes away to this this uh, kind of rundown, shabby house that the basketball team is housed at. And um, this is what we were filming on this day. We were showing, uh, you can see basically on a call sheet, it's got the scene number, and then it has a uh, you know the header, and, and it says whether it's day for night. In this case, we are doing day for night, so we're shooting it during the day, but it's a scene that takes place at night. So uh, one of that's one of the challenges with having a kid who can't be there past twelve thirty is we had to do a lot of this. And the scene is it says Gaines shows Tehran the house. Tehran is disappointed. So basically, there's a little slug line that just tells you what's going to happen, and it's a scene between Michael Rainey Jr. and Josh Charles. It's one and three-eighths pages. There is a column that says D slash N, which is, is it day or night? And then which night of the story is it? And this is a way that the whole production keeps track of, because you're shooting the whole thing out of order, what is he or she wearing? There might be haircut changes. There might be other sort of continuity things that by shooting it out of order, you need to make sure that when you go from one scene to the next, that they're wearing the right thing. And in this case, some of Tehran's clothes get better in the second half of the second act because he's he starts wearing a chain. He's got an earring. He's got, you know, that the team has, has uh, moved up in the rankings so they have more resources. And so that column is telling you like where in the story uh, sort of the practical elements of, of wardrobe and hair and makeup and those types of things are on the character. And, um, yeah, so that's uh, scene 17. It was our first one up. And so the, the first thing really is that the Greg Wilson, our DP, is, is I'm talking with him about how we're lighting it because it's day for night. So the first thing you have to do is black out all the windows to make sure that there's no light seeping into the space. And then the other thing was this was not our first choice of house for the Liberty House. 
we'd found a different one and I told Liz on a previous podcast that the, the people that we wanted to rent it from like went and Googled something, you know, Hollywood film yep. rentals and then wanted some insanely high rate and, and we were just always making a whole lot of movie for the money so we couldn't afford to spend a higher amount on anything. We always had to be pinching pennies so this was a second choice house and it was actually a nicer house than what we wanted. So if you watch the movie, the break into the second act, Teron walks in and he sees this room that's kind of dingy and run down and there's a couple of exposed beams on the wall that wall is not even there. This room that they just walked into, there are two false walls that we built, hmm. and we exposed some insulation and some beam, and Todd Jeffrey, the production designer, built that because the room was actually like larger and nicer, and it had these big windows that we weren't going to be able to cover up because it was day for night. So even there, it's just a simple scene of a kid walking into a room, but we've already had to do some construction and some prepping in order to get it to look appropriately shoddy. So are the gaffers and the lighting department and the set department, are they all, the art department, are they all working to, at the same time? Is this all happening simultaneously? Or would you have, like, the set dressers go in first uh, and then the, light, the lighting team come in? What was that? That depends on, like? on the, the location and how the line producer and, and the AD and everybody wants to do it. In this case, we knew that we were going to be inside the house for the first half of the day. And then you have lunch, and it's called lunch, whether it's nighttime yeah. or whatever, or breakfast time, or whatever. You know, you try to keep the uh, you try to keep your schedule as if there's breakfast, lunch, and dinner, even if it's day, night, whatever. Um, we knew that once it got dark, we were going to come outside. So for this, one of the first things that we discussed was actually what are we doing in the second half of the day outside? Because we know it's going to be night; it's going to require more lighting. And therefore, what are the camera angles going to be on this scene? It's something that we're referring to my overheads in advance so that, the, uh, so that they can be setting up all of the lights and the stands and everything in a place that we're not going to see when we come out after lunch. Then we can go in, and while they're doing that outside, on the inside, the production designer and the art director, they're addressing the set with uh, the bunk beds that we're going to see when Teron walks in and... Uh, in this case, this house, for some reason, had guns in it. So then there was some sort of consideration with how do we lock those up or get those out of there or something. There's always a curveball. And uh, this the story takes a whole turn. Yeah. Teron shows up and, yeah, that'd be a Things get dark. That'd be a different story. <laughs> um, and so this sort of, you know, we're using basically this one house as two different sets. And one is going to be night and one is going to be day for night. And one is interior and one's exterior. Okay, so you have everything set up. The lighting is all good to go. The set looks dressed. It's what you want it to look like. Now the actors come on. Right. Now, usually you wouldn't have the lighting good to go. You'd, you'd have the actors come and you'd block it so that you know exactly. I mean, it depends obviously on the production, but a lot of times you'd block the scene with the actors and then go ahead and go through your setups and set the lighting up for the first shot. You have sort of the general lighting setup, but not the particular, you know, what what's the reflector for this close-up, that kind of thing. In this case, yeah, we tried to get the lighting as, as good as possible. And what we wanted to do ideally was light for 360 meaning that we can just turn the camera around and shoot a reverse angle or what we do a lot of in the movie because it is more handheld and verite and documentary like is the the camera is actually just carrying with the characters as, as they walk past something so you can't do that if you have lighting stands everywhere and what a lot of dps will try to do lighting 360 doesn't mean you're not lighting you still are you're still controlling it but that you're trying to have sources outside of the house for example if the lighting's coming through the windows you're adjusting uh practicals which are which are the lamps and and um or you're just putting sort of smaller lights 
outside the frame that are bouncing off a wall. Uh, one of the things that, that we did on this film is Greg had bought uh, these quasars, which are just basically little uh, fluorescent strips that are magnetic, and you can attach them, and they're quick, and you can adjust the color temperature. And just for when you need some light over in this area, you can just quickly fly that in and put it up. Um, we put all of our practicals on a – they were basically just Philips Hue bulbs, the Wi-Fi ones, and then we had a controller that we could change the color temperature, change the intensity. Again, like speed was really the consideration here because we weren't going to be able to go in and, and, and adjust each lighting setup on a shot-by-shot -shot basis. So the actors show up. In this case, you could see it's um, – they arrive, and they're supposed to be at set at 2 p.m., or the block, blocking is 1.30 p.m. So now we've already been there for a few hours. Michael and Josh show up for the scene. Um, in this case, they're walking in through a door that's supposed to be nighttime, but it's actually 1.30 p.m. out. So we've had to tent the whole entrance to the house so that it looks like night. And also, also that obviously has limitations because you can't really look outside or you'll see that there's just there's nothing out there. And then, uh, you know, we go through uh, blocking, director's blocking. Now, what's, I think, surprising to a lot of first-time directors is director's blocking is really when you're making the movie, but it's also such a short period of time. Yeah, that makes sense. It does. Of course. Yeah. But you're putting the material up on its legs, and then you want to make adjustments, but everyone else is just waiting for you. And, of course, that's part of the, the challenge with the film set is you have so many people... And so many of them can't be doing their jobs at all times. Like they're waiting for the direction or for the shoot to start or whatever it is. So whenever you're just in there working with the actors, like this is really your time to make adjustments, but you've also got to get through it as quickly as possible so you can start rolling. So then, you know, when I hear you say, you know, blocking doesn't take a lot of time, but you still need to, uh, you know, have the, have time to be making adjustments and stuff. I feel like blocking is just a framework, essentially. And then you can spend the meat of your time actually in the takes, in the process of like getting take after take uh, to make the adjustments that you want in terms of like an emotional performance. Or like if you see something that your initial blocking maybe was throwing your actor off in a, in a way that like is screwing with his emotion or like the circumstances that he's going through, uh, then you can change that from take to take. You can, but because because the lighting setup is dependent on what the blocking is and where somebody says this and, you know, what their mark is and then if, they, if they're walking, if they stop, if they turn, if someone sits, if someone stands, if there's a counter move, if someone, you know, like all that, that type of movement, a lot of the times a viewer is not noticing those things because it feels natural. It feels like what the character is doing. But a lot of times you put something on its feet and it doesn't initially feel right. Someone is doing this and they're standing still and it feels flat. Mm -hmm. So you get them walking, you get somebody to stand up, you get somebody to, to stop somebody else. You know, someone comes into a room in a different way. Like a lot of the adjustments that you're making are important and change things enough that you don't want to have to change it once you're already filming and once everybody's on set and the light's all set up and everything. So the blocking is, um, you know, you're not necessarily getting full performances, but you do need to do to discover what feels right and then once the actors have the confidence that that feels right it's the time it's a private time for the actors and the director to work things out and to say this feels right or this doesn't work or you know why am I doing this and all those kind of things uh, then if you feel good about that that's really what's going to let you get through your next scene and, and the day so then you have your blocking mapped out 
and you're ready to actually set up for a take, uh, what's the next step from the blocking to cameras rolling? Typically, the actors would go off and get through hair and wardrobe because if they've just shown up to set and they, and you do the blocking first, you know that they have their prep to do, uh, especially if it's like a sci-fi movie. I mean, heck, if it's a sci-fi movie, they might have been in makeup for eight hours already, actually, yeah. for that matter. this uh, There was no eight hours of makeup on this movie. In fact, there's almost no makeup at all. That's one tip is if you are working with a minor, cast a really good-looking kid because Michael never went through hair and makeup for this movie. Ever. In fact, the only makeup was we'd have to spray sweat on him for basketball scenes where he'd be sweaty, that kind of stuff. Um, and then, you know, usually on a movie, after you've done the blocking, there's a lot more that happens. That's when the lighting is happening. That's when hair and makeup, et cetera, et cetera. In this case, we were trying to block it and then basically just shoot right away. I mean, there, there were some lighting adjustments, but we didn't want to send what's called first team, meaning a talent, away to a trailer and waste that time that Michael's got a ticking clock on, you know, and then spend time bringing them back once everything's ready. I mean, you know, we knew for the the visual configuration of the movie and the production design and hair and makeup, everyone was going to have to make sacrifices and not have it be, quite frankly, the best looking because the idea was that the basketball stuff looks great and the other stuff doesn't, and that's by design. It's like a diptych. It's two, two halves of the, of the picture. Um, and but yeah, we weren't going to have time, even if we wanted it to be the most refined look. Well, you're dressing down the sets enough as it is to look shitty, so you know <laughs> you're good. Yeah, in this case, we were actually trying to make it look worse. Yeah. So then, okay, when you call rolling, what are you looking for in a take? Like, what are what are some things as a director that you really need to be paying attention to? I think as a director, it's it's do you believe it, especially for something like this where. The movie that we're making is about youth basketball. It's it. Everything needs to feel like it's happening in our current world, and it's believable. It's not uh, tonally. It's not an elevated world. It's not science fiction. It's not some other time, another place. You know, it's it needs to feel like this is, is this is documentary like, and the performances feel natural. So 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 much of it is just. Does this feel like? a human being is doing it with the emotions that they're going through and that we understand their emotions and that we're close with them. And, um, you know, that's, that's often not the case on the first take. And then now, now it's, now it's on you as a director. What can you say? What can, how can you get someone to turn the corner? What adjustments do you need to make? And, and I think when it comes to working with actors, every actor is different. I think some directors want to impose their working style on their actors and that works for some of the cast members and not for others. For me, I like to try to figure out, and other directors are this, some other directors are this way as well, but to try to figure out what the actor needs from you, and each actor needs something different, I think. One of my favorite terms that I picked up when I was directing my short was something that my uh, DP would always say, actually, and it was uh, something that he would say to his lighting team uh, after he was happy with it, with what they'd done. He'd say, I buy that. And then I would just pick that up for directing because it really is like, do I buy what's happening in this scene? Like, is it regardless of the fact of like what the world is like, does it make sense in the world? You know, will you do you buy what's happening for your vision? Exactly. And each actor is approaching their character from the inside out and their their perspective, no matter how experienced or how good of an actor or whatever they're bringing to the table, it is they're seeing it from that perspective and you as the director are responsible to be knowing what the overall tone of the world is, what scene you're coming from as the audience, what the, the, the change in the scene needs to be to get the audience to the next place. 
And so what feels natural in the moment could be actually wrong for the film. And, and so you need to be mm-hmm. sort of the, the other side of, 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 the, uh, of the perspective. And um, again, yeah, I think you know, some, some actors need a friend. Some actors need an enemy. Some actors, um, I mean, every every relationship I think is different, and that's part of one, one of the reasons we talked about last time on the scheduling issue of, you know, don't don't put your toughest scenes first. Is you're all trying to figure out each other and how best to work together and what's the best collaboration. If you say after take one, I buy that, I'd say that's pretty rare. I mean, the whole point of doing multiple takes is that you're making adjustments, and this is really where your bread and butter as a director is is. Ha- making those adjustments is there anything that can be said for trying to get varied takes so it's like you know you're you've you've seen something you like it you buy it uh now you want to see something else you just want to experiment a little bit or is that a matter of time yeah some directors i mean i don't know how actors feel about it some directors don't know what they want and so they want to try a lot of different things that they have a lot of options in the edit room I think on an indie, you probably don't have enough time to throw a lot of stuff at the wall, so you've really got to be specific and know what it is you like. Um, you know, some of the best stuff does come out of collaboration and somebody having an idea that's different than yours and trying it. But ult- but really, I think it is how do you make these adjustments with the actors in the limited time that you have to, to turn the corner and to get it to be a place where you do buy it. And there are all sorts of different techniques. I think... One of my favorite things uh, when I'm working with an actor is when they come in with questions. I think that's such an important thing, quality for an actor to have is to be like having this inquisitive mind about what exactly is happening in the circumstance that then you as the director have the responsibility to be like, uh, yes, this is happening. You're right. Let's roll with that. Or no, this that's you know that's an interesting take, but let's push it further in this direction. Yeah, it's all about motivations and objectives and giving them something that they can play. I think a lot of actors run into directors who say, oh, this should be happier, or this should be sadder, or this should be faster. And that's a that's a results-based sort of external direction. The, I think the best thing you can do is to try to give them an understanding of why they're doing something and what their objective is and how they're feeling about something. And, and oftentimes over the course of a scene, that changes, and you need to zero in on the moment when their objective changes but it could just be, you know, in terms of just to get into the nuts and bolts of what, what I mean is if somebody is saying you're angry here, as an actor, how do you play that? Like, why are you angry? And what and how is it manifesting itself? And, and then they can sort of picture that and, and they can ask you, well, what is it about that that makes me angry? And you can say, well, it's, you know, he, he's always siding with his mother. And here he's doing that, and that's how it feels to you. You just want to strangle him, and that doesn't mean in this scene you're going to go put your hands on his neck, but it gives them something to play and to feel and, and to, um, you know, it's it's an actionable Right. Well, you're giving them, his- you're giving them history, and you're giving them uh, motivation, essentially. Exactly. Um, and, you know, like if you just say, <laughs> be angrier, you're not going to buy it because there's no emotion behind it. It's just someone playing mm-hmm. anger where... and, and it's like what are you trying to get out of this other person you know maybe mm-hmm. maybe you're trying to you're trying to catch them in a lie so when you're saying this line uh, you know the words on the page are one thing but the subtext is usually something else and and really zeroing in on what their motivation is and why they're doing it and, and what their objective is, is is i think really 
um, the secret to being a an, a an actor friendly director and to feeling like it's a collaboration as opposed to them sort of searching to try to give you what you want. But if you can't define it and you're not giving them something to play in the moment, then it, it makes it harder. Right. So then the more you give the actor, the more they'll give you back in that sense, right? The more like questions you ask, the more questions they'll ask. The more history you give them, the more full their character, their understanding of the character will be and their motivations will be. Sometimes. I think sometimes also actors have a really deep process where they go off and their process is to do a whole lot of research and build a lot of backstory totally, that yeah. wasn't necessarily in the in the script. And, well, and hopefully, you, hopefully you're on the same page about that. Yeah. When you talk about collaboration, that's really where the collaboration comes in is hopefully they've been doing that work. So then they can show you things that you haven't thought about and you can either rein them in or tell them to explore that further. Okay, so you get a take, you call cut. How much time do you spend with the actor to make the adjustments? Yeah, I mean, again, I think I think it's about giving them something to play, as opposed to you know just saying, okay, cut, we'll do another. Sometimes, sometimes that's the case, but um, you know, in terms of the tools as a director that you have to use, you can talk to the actors together. You can take one actor aside and talk to them, and not the other. You can uh, make a physical change to try to make them uncomfortable or more comfortable um you know as we look at this call sheet uh Tehran is disappointed in this house and he gets in into bed and something that you know when he when he gets into bed there's this moment in the movie where we're just sort of hanging on his face and he's uncomfortable it's his first time away from home he's a he's a 14 year old kid he's never been out of the state but Michael Reagan Jr. He's a 15-year-old movie star. He's actually been in a whole lot of stuff. He's not really that uncomfortable in, in this moment. So I remember we were doing some takes of him on the phone, and, and I wanted to give him something tangible because this part of the scene was not dialogue-based. I couldn't take another actor aside and have them prod him differently. There wasn't anything with blocking. He's lying in a bed. So when he's taking out his cell phone, what I, what I started doing to make it more actionable, I just started hiding his phone. Like I just started frustrating him actually so that when he wants to call his parents, he can't even find it and it's stuck at the foot of the bed underneath this cover. You know, if you can do anything that makes each take different and fresh and gets, you know, get, gives them um, something to do, then I think that can also help as opposed to just, just using, you can use your words, but you can also use physical blocking and, and, placement and you know changing other things as well in the environment so what if the actor doesn't agree with the things you're saying or worse what if they're just plain unable to make the changes that you're talking about yeah i mean i think uh every actor has a different process and and sometimes if if the actor and you have collaborated deeply on this character there aren't really questions it's just a matter of sort of giving the reps to get there like Josh Charles has been acting as long as I've been alive. He's an amazing actor. It was just about creating the right environment. It wasn't really about making adjustments, you know, and, and sometimes as a director, you still have control over that. And as that controller, what you're trying to do is keep the environment the most conducive to that actor in the way that they like it. So so if if every time you call cut, if hair and makeup is coming in and, and art direction is coming in and making adjustments to the set and that's taking an actor out of the rhythm, then you can just you can do a series you just you don't call cut you just say great back to one still rolling and then that way you're keeping the hair makeup people from coming on the set and the, you know you're allowing an actor to sort of just stay in rhythm and do a series and 
if you're shooting Super 16 or 35 millimeter, maybe that's not a great idea. But with digital, you can keep rolling, and then the script supervisor can make a note of that. And then in the edit room, you know, you're not. It's just it doesn't cost any money really to to store a longer take. So that's something you can do. Um, and then if if there's a disagreement, sometimes that's good. Sometimes you have to go deeper. And I mean that's that's what movie making is all about. Is is it's not always being on the same page. And, um, you know, in, in the heat of the night is a great example. 1967 Norman Jewison film that uh, Rod Steiger won an Oscar for. He didn't want to chew gum as this racist sheriff in this movie. And the director said, try it for me. Just do it for a day. And that character is famous for chewing gum throughout the movie and the way that he uses that physicality. He speeds it up. He slows it down. It's, it's an indicator of the emotion that he's feeling. He won an Oscar for it, but he didn't want to do it until the director was able to convince him to do it for a day. So you have that outside perspective, and it is about um, you know, getting out, sort of getting past the initial friction of, well, this doesn't feel right. It's like, well, try it for me. It, it is a collaboration, and, and sometimes... The opposite is true, right? Sometimes the, the actor needs you to be their friend and to be encouraging and just to be there um, complimenting them and to give them more confidence to do what they're already doing, but just taking it a step further. So I really think that it's it's different for every actor. Then finally, I think another tool is is the actors in the scenes with each other. You can take an actor aside and talk to one of them and not talk to the other or give them something that they're going to do differently that maybe the other actor doesn't know they're going to do differently this time. And then that provokes a different response, either from themselves or from the other actor in the scene. Um, so I think, you know, this is really where so much of the, the direction of actors is pretty much unknown by people outside of filmmaking. You know, if you look at movie reviews, they'll say this actor gave a great performance but the direction was bad and you know it's like they they haven't been on a film set they haven't directed a movie and, and oftentimes they're sort of ascribing one thing to somebody who really it should be owed to the other and so on and so forth but it's direction is not just camera placement and 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 editing and and music it's it's the, there's it's such a close collaboration with the actors to get the performances so you have a take that you like how do you know that you like the take and you can move on well first of all you're probably already out of time yeah. <laughs> and then it's really just it, it, it's instinct you know as you said do you buy it and I got my start as a DIY director so I was often filming at the same time and pulling focus at the same time and so for me it's a luxury to just be focused on the performance and not be holding the camera myself some directors watch playback we, we never did that on this movie except in the case of some of the basketball sequences where it's shot at high speed and you need to play it back in slow motion or you need to check whether it is in focus. Um, but when it comes to, to the dramatic scenes, I think you've got to, you probably don't have the time you get to watch. And obviously if you're going to sit there and watch playback, everyone's just waiting for you. So you've got you've to really be cognizant of everything that's happening in a scene and really be close to that monitor and watching it intently and then letting people know with affirmation and confirmation and positivity that, that you love that one and that you can move on so they feel like, good, we got there, and that they can feel good about moving on as opposed to we didn't get it and we ran out of time and now that one's going to be in the movie for, for posterity forever. Right, or like, 
Uh, it was okay, but we don't have time, so we gotta move on, guys. Like, you yeah, know. no one, no one wants that. No. <laughs> While we're talking about like ways to keep people motivated on set, because that's such an important part of a director's job, what were some practices that you would use on set to make sure that everyone, uh, the cast, the crew, felt taken care of um, during the entirety of the production? How did you make sure that people were happy? Morale on a low-budget indie is always, I think, a challenge because especially if people are accustomed to commercials or music videos or things that are shorter, they don't have the endurance factor. And oftentimes those things pay better. So your, your personality as a director is a huge part of what the morale is. And obviously there's plenty of things that you can't control in terms of circumstances and this is, again, this was a movie that was really challenging for the crew because there were so many things that weren't in place and we were making changes on the fly and I was rewriting the script and, um, you know, we had this limitation with with, uh, with the number of hours that our, our lead could be there. Therefore, the crew who might normally be accustomed to be able to make adjustments in a certain amount of time didn't have that amount of time and we had to just keep moving. So I think it's really, it's your personality. It's knowing everybody's name and appreciating their contribution, learning everybody's name as quickly as you can at the beginning of the movie. I've heard of some directors that just have their crew wear name tags for the first week. If you're doing a movie where your crew is four people, you probably don't need to do that. If it's larger, then you do. And I had crew members say to me afterwards that they, some some crew members joined us later in the shoot, you know, and, and on day one I went up and introduced myself and was appreciative of their contribution and the fact that they were there to help us. And, and at the end of the shoot, they came up to me and said how much that means to them and that they, they don't normally get that from directors. So I think really whatever you can do, you're going to be up against it. You know, you're always going to be fighting um, the fact that time is short and that money is short and no one's getting paid enough and no one has enough time. So you've got to keep it positive while still being able to push. That's the challenge, right? Is if you are just positive all the time and you like things and you move on you're not going to end up with a good movie so that's sort of the the challenge is walking that line between being inspiring and being a good leader but also being able to respond when someone's not giving you what they want or when they're not able to do their job and to get them to go further or to replace them if you have to or you know whatever it is but yeah i think we saw in this movie we had some tough times we were filming it in the summer there were some sets that were extremely hot because it was august uh, you know, time was short. There were <laughs> everything that, you know, Murphy's Law. Yeah. Everything that can go wrong will go wrong. And and you as the director, I found that one of my strengths was that I never lose my shit. Not once in this movie did I yell at anybody. And so for me, that's like, oh, okay, I'm the person that can have a steady hand in these situations and I can respond to extenuating circumstances and try to come up with the solution without yelling and screaming and hemming and hawing. And that that's a strength too, you know. Some directors are probably more hot and cold. They probably would be quicker with the compliment, but also, you know, um, would berate somebody sooner. So I think you just have to figure out what what is it about your personality that makes you a good captain of this ship. Totally. And, I mean, you bring up uh, Murphy's Law, but, you know, there's all these extenuating circumstances. It's such a tough job to make a movie. But then also things are constantly going wrong all the time. Um and that's got to take a toll on you as a director. So how do you take care of yourself? That's That I think is harder because on a set, 
whether you're making a good or a bad movie, it, the, the operation is the same. And not many people on set actually have a comm tech where they're hearing the takes that you're getting and they're hearing their adjustments that you're making. Not many people are actually by the monitor and are seeing the performances and the visuals and the actual movie-making process. There's a lot of people around and that they only know whether the production is going smoothly or not. And there are plenty of productions that have gone smoothly and been terrible movies or productions that have been a nightmare and turned out to be really good movies. And you're the one who has all of it on your back to make sure that the movie is good at the end of the day because that's what's going to be remembered. That's how you're going to get your career off the ground and get your next opportunity. But there's not that many people that are seeing the adjustments and the things that you're scrapping for and all the time that you're spending on this, that, or the other. They might just know that you're behind or they might think that you're spending too much time on something. So there is sort of the two-way street of morale, which is you need to identify people that you like working with that can go to your next movie. And you see this in directors all the time that once they've made a few movies, they'll identify people and, you know, David Fincher will hold up a production to wait for his dolly grip. You know, make this, the movie with the same crew over and over and over again, and you don't have that luxury on your first film, and it makes it harder for you because what you also don't have is a track record and the credibility of everybody saying, well, this director's method is different from most people I've worked with, but it produces great results, right? Right. If you're doing something different, and, I, and directors have all kinds of different methodologies. Plenty of directors create chaotic set environments and make changes all the time. Plenty of directors stick to the script and are on time and on schedule. There are all sorts of different ways to direct a movie. There's no one-size-fits-all approach, but when you're making your first movie, you're going to be questioned about it a lot more. Yeah, and you bring up a good thing about experience here because you also don't want to be like that inexperienced director who is yelling a lot, and that's your tactic. Like, probably don't do that. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have a great opportunity in the future if that is who you are. Yeah. I mean, hey, maybe your movie is just so good, but usually the people that can get away with that have made several successful films already. Uh, you know, so so we'll check in on on the seventh feature podcast, yeah, to see whether I can still say that I don't lose my shit. You'll probably be yelling a lot <laughs> at that point, I think. Okay, so then we're done with the first half of the day. What's the second half of the day look like? So you take lunch, which it's a godsend for everybody. At, yeah, at this point, lunch. I mean, lunch was dinner, but it was dinner time. But you still call it lunch, and. It's, it's uh, you know, if you can feed the crew well, that is a good investment. Yeah, you got to do it. Because everyone's working too hard, they're working too long, and if the food is also shitty... Yeah, the food has to be good. So in this case, we're shooting in a house, and, and you know, location shooting is a certain challenge. So we had uh, holding for extras and for wardrobe and all that it's some some parking lot nearby you know it couldn't be there because the house you're coming in the driveway you're going into the house there's not a lot of room so you go over there you take lunch and for you as the director this is your time to sort of do the second half of the day's prep just mentally going through the scenes trying to think think of what's going to go wrong coming up and if there's any changes that you want to make based on what you saw in the first half of the day it's often time to sit with the producer and discuss things. Smoke them if you got them. And so then the, the, the end of this day, we are then going exterior night for night. Uh, this is, it looks like we shot 
this is a good example of doing things you know out of order we shot scene 76 and then scene 16 76 is Tehran is on his cell phone with his mom video chatting and there's a scene in the movie where she sees his grades and suddenly his grades are great including in math a subject that he has dyscalculia a numbers blindness learning difference how are his grades good so this is a scene that I had written it was carried out in dialogue we actually shot the mom on the Skype cell phone portion of the movie first as I was saying you want to shoot something easy at the beginning of the movie so our actual first shot of the movie was an iPhone taped to a laptop uh, which was you know Certainly uh, less less to deal with on the production standpoint, just to get it, get it going with something easy. So we'd already shot her part. But then, of course, to have Tehran on the phone watching that, uh, I think sometimes if you're trying to deal with playback on a phone, some of the scene we shot with her playing, you know, with actually playing back that on the phone so he could respond to it. And then some of it I think we were shooting because, you know, playback was tough and adjustment was taking time and we were running out of time that he just did the lines. But I think, um, you know, this is also a good example of what you find with performance and with editing is that I had written, it looks like on the call sheet, it's a one-page scene. In the movie, it's much shorter because what I'd written as a line that she didn't believe him when he was saying he was getting a B in math, Sharon had just played it with a look. And it looks at it. He didn't need a line. So... Ultimately, that ended up being what's in the movie is that you get it just from that, and it's a shorter scene than, than I had written. But did you know at the time that it was going to be like that? So No, I shot the whole scene out. Okay. I shot it with the extra yeah. extra lines. So that was scene 76, right? This is uh, two-thirds of the way through the movie. And then immediately after that, we were shooting scene 16, which is Tehran arriving at this house for the first time. So you've already seen, you know, in this day we shot 17 and first, and then we're shooting 16 last, and then in between we shot 64, 65, 76. So this is a scene where the the prep at the beginning of the day and being very clear with what the ang- angles were going to be is what allowed the crew to set the lights up in the right places so that when we come out, and very often by the end of the day you're behind schedule and you're, you've got a hard out with the kid in our case, and that's, that's one tip I would say for scheduling is it's often better to put your most difficult scenes earlier in the day because if you're going to spend time on something and you're going to get behind and you're really going to dig in and you're going to say, I need more time on this, then the things that you're sacrificing are the, the later scenes, which you've deemed less important. So in this case, this was a, a simpler scene of Tehran pulling up in a van and getting out and seeing Coach Gaines, it's not a, it's not a incredibly performance intensive dependent scene, right? And it's something that at the end of the night you're chasing, and Michael's about to turn into a pumpkin, so we can just get in there and and do it. And and hopefully, if you've communicated everything with the crew at the beginning of the day, then all the lights are in the right place, and you can just get out there and uh, and shoot it and wrap your night out. Hopefully. And you have to keep in mind that that this is day 21 of 25 and Michael Rainey Jr. is in every single scene. He's 15 years old. So even if you could keep shooting all night, you don't want to do that. We probably have basketball scenes the next day. You know, Michael's got to 
He's got to go get his beauty sleep. He's not going through hair and makeup. You know, <laughs> we're not fixing bags under his eyes. So, so yeah, we've got to we've got to get this van pulling in and and get the heck out of there. So after you've wrapped your actors, the whole set still really uh, isn't wrapped. There's a lot of breakdown and a lot of transferring that needs to happen. Uh, can you walk us through that? Yeah, in this case, I think this probably was our last day at this location. And part of the AD's job is to ask the crew in advance, how long is it going to take for, take for us to wrap out of here? Get all the lights and the set dressing. And in, in the case of something like this, the house is going to have to be returned to its original condition. That fake wall that we built has got to come down. So the, there's, you know, in some cases, uh, I think in this case, certainly, the the production designer and his crew are going to be back the next day to to get everything out of there. But in terms of grip and electric, you're going to be taking all that out that night. So so the AD has already sort of scheduled your day based on how long he anticipates they're going to need to get out of there. Of course, your DIT has all of this footage, and, and it's really crazy to be on this film when there's all this apparatus and it's all going on this one little hard drive. Thankfully, G-Tech hard drives did their job, never lost any data. That was good. Uh, and, um, you know, what you're doing then, depending on whether you're in a... a production town where your post house is or if not you're you're packing up hard drives and shipping off dailies uh, if you have a studio they're watching dailies if you don't you know it might be your buddy taking the hard drive and, and making some copies on on his laptop in this case we had uh, dailies being done where they oftentimes the, the daily provider will do a one light so they're essentially just doing a really simple color correction applying a LUT and then that goes to the studio, and in this case, it went to my editor, Jeff Wishingrad, who's in Los Angeles. And Jeff was cutting while we were shooting, but we're shooting in Colorado. You, you send some footage every few days. It wasn't like having an editor on set where you're actually editing that day's footage. You know, it was a few days delayed, and ultimately, I felt like because I got my start as an editor... And because we were doing really long days and I was editing all night that I didn't I didn't want to watch dailies. I wanted Jeff to tell me if we were missing something, if our coverage was bad, if the sound was bad, you know, that kind of thing. If there's something that we should be aware of. But because I got my started as an editor, uh, I felt like I knew coverage wise what, what I was getting. And I didn't want to start looking at, you know, some rough cut of the film while we were still in production. Right. You said you wish you'd had an editor. I do. On, yeah. On set. Um, I mean, for a variety of different reasons, I like, I wouldn't have even, I would have been okay with not looking at dailies. I think I just wanted some, my editor to be on set in a capacity so that like later on he would know more about what he would actually have to edit after we wrap. Um, and also so he could just get a vibe for the atmosphere that was going on down there because my, it was a little weird and eerie and I wanted that to translate into the short itself. Right. Um, so really it was just about like having the person on location uh, and getting a sense for everything that way rather than actually like sitting down and watching dailies. I imagine they'd be a lot shorter because I'm only, you know, it's a short, not a feature. But um, yeah, I, I still wish that I, if he could have been down there. Uh, but you know. Also, you know, whatever your post schedule is affects that as well because sometimes people are trying to make a festival deadline and what's happening is if your editor can start editing an assembly right while you're shooting then that's time that you're not 
you know, that, that's that, that you can wrap out and after you wrap the movie, one tip is to definitely take a week. <laughs> I think sometimes it's like, oh, if you're if you're trying to make a, a, a festival deadline and you really just want to, you know, jump right in, but you're so exhausted and you also just need not the physical recovery, but the mental recovery to go out there in the real world and exist as a human being and have a life and get some sleep and do all of the things that you didn't do during this movie so that you can come back to the movie and look at it with fresh eyes and not just be reliving war stories and trying to keep this shot in the movie because it was so hard to get and you can kind of get a little bit of space. Yeah. Definitely, you know, enjoy your, your rap party. No, I never had one. <laughs> well, yeah, on a short, neither did I. There you go. <laughs> you can have your own rap party. In this case, we we uh, we had a rap party, and then we were create we were on the streets of Denver, skateboarding. You, you skateboard? I I don't skateboard. Somebody <laughs> brought a skateboard. Greg Wilson, my DP, is a former Olympic snowboarder. Oh, cool. So he's an excellent skateboarder, but. Uh, you know, so guys were skateboarding up and down the street, and then we went to Waffle House or IHOP. It was Denver. It's not the South. I'm from North Carolina. It's a Waffle House, but in Denver, it's an IHOP. Yeah. And then I think we went back to somebody's apartment room, and Greg had the the bright idea that we would be hungry, which was true. So he went to McDonald's with uh, I don't know if it was his best boy or who it was, and ordered like. 30 hamburgers so you went to IHOP <laughs> and then you had McDonald's after hey we we had worked really <laughs> really hard on this movie and everyone was game to, to finally you know be celebrating and and to um be able to just enjoy the fruits of our labors I think yeah I think it was IHOP and then and then Greg went through a drive-thru and ordered 30 burgers and and they said uh are you serious you know how long <laughs> it's gonna take and like, we'll wait We'll wait for it. It's worth it. Yeah. And it was. Well, I'd say that that's a wrap on this podcast, uh, too, uh, because we did cover pretty extensively every moment of uh, that day and what a typical day on what generally would be many sets. Uh, Of course, every set is going to have their own set of problems, but I think like that was a pretty thorough rundown of what you may encounter. Next, I guess, would be editing, right? Yeah, post-production. Post-production. So that's something that I'm still doing. Yeah, this was this was an episode where, of course, we could have done so many episodes on production. If you've seen the movie, and I hope you have, this is a good time to send us any questions you have at firstfeature at nofilmschool.com or I'm at Ryan Biku on Twitter because, obviously, this is a 25-day shoot. We went through part of day 21, and that's it. We sort of covered a lot of the visual components and filming basketball in the previous episode, but you know, any any questions you have, especially if, if they're applicable to your own projects, uh, let us know, and and we'll we'll be doing an, an episode at the end of the podcast that's just a Q and A, as if it were a, a screening. A oh, that's cool. Q and A. I didn't know that. Yeah. Nice. I'm actually I'm I'm not even sure if we're going to do ten episodes. It might be nine because the last one that we had on the schedule was going to be we were going to do post production ne- next. And then kind of release and reception, and I don't know how you know how much we'll have to talk about. I guess a lot. Yeah, I think so. Okay. In that case, <laughs> see you guys next time. 
Uh, this is the first feature at nofilmschool.com slash first feature. He is Jim underscore John underscore Jim on Twitter. I'm at Ryan B. Koo. And there are lots of other podcasts on No Film School. Please make sure you're subscribed in the podcasting app of your choice. Uh, swoosh. Swo- swoosh? Yeah, that like was between Swish yeah. and like the Nike swoosh. Swoosh. <laughs> Thank you all for listening. Okay. See you next time. Bye.